Join with me in Nehemiah chapter 13. There is a statement uh, that has been um, taken from Charles Tremendous Jones. It's appeared in literature and other places in a variety of forms. And that is, your success in the future depends in large part on the books you read, the people you meet, and the experiences that you have. The way that Charles Tremendous Jones actually put it was that you will be the same person five years from now except for the people you meet and the books that you read. You know something, that's true uh, in every one of these subjects fall into Nehemiah chapter 13. Books or book, people, and experiences. And we want to help you with that uh, today because quite frankly, nobody woke up this morning saying, you know, I sure would like to be a failure. No one did that this morning. No one woke up this morning planning and excited about failing at anything. Everyone that wakes up in the morning wants to succeed at something important. And we want our lives to succeed on a daily basis so that by the time we're done with them, we will have a series of days that will build up to ultimate success and especially success with God. Hey, did you know you can be a success with God? You can be a success with God. God. In fact, I'd say to you, being a success with God's probably easier than any other success you will pursue. Uh, there are some practical things we've got to do that, and they're found in Nehemiah 13, where in Nehemiah 13, Nehemiah enforces, he enforces an environment and culture of success in Jerusalem. Now, what's happened back in chapter 10 is that the people have promised and covenanted to marry the right people within the faith. They've also covenanted to keep the Sabbath, and they've covenanted to go by the Word of God. Well, Nehemiah has been on loan from the king for about 12 years, and he returns back to King Darius in Babylon. He's gone for an undefined period of time, and when he returns to Jerusalem in Nehemiah 13, all those promises and the keeping of them have vanished. The people are no longer marrying the right people. They're marrying outside the faith. The people are no longer keeping the law of God, and the people are, are no longer uh, uh, keeping the Sabbath as well. So they have actually failed. Well, no one came to church this morning to hear how to be a failure, so we're going to flip this text some and talk about how to be a success with God. And the thing I want you to understand is you can succeed with God. If you'll trust him and trust his word. And the question arises now, in this time, what do I need to do to succeed with God? Well, remember, it's the books you read, the people you meet, the experiences that you have. So in the first place, you need the right book. Chapter 13, verse number 1. It says here, on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of of the people. So they returned to the word of God, and by the end of the chapter, they are a success with God. In fact, everything in chapter 13 flows out of this first commitment in verse 1 to go by the Word of God. Those that are successful with God do not neglect His Word, the Bible. Those that are a success with God do the opposite. They have a voracious appetite and an ambitious plan to consume the Word of God and to have it, like seed, implanted into their soul. They take it as the Word of God, inspired, infallible, inerrant, and applicable, 
in every area of life. There is this voracious hunger for the Word of God. In fact, if you don't have a hunger, become alarmed. Let the red alarm sound off in your soul and return to God and rededicate yourself to Him that you may have this voracious hunger. Everyone that's successful goes by the Word of God and consumes the Word of God. In worship, in small group, on a daily basis, they give themselves to that. Now, I want to point out a couple of things here because thus far I've not said anything that uh, you probably haven't heard before. But I want to say this. When it comes to the Scripture, we have got to grow to the point where it, in, it in, in, a, in and of itself is sufficient. In other words, studying a Christian book or listening to Christian radio or going through a study course of some kind may be a good help to you, like supplementing your diet with vitamins. But it is not the substance of a walk with God. There is no Christian book no Christian devotional guide, there is no Christian literature, there is no study course that is as rich and full, life-changing and powerful as the Word of God itself. God's people have got to be the kind of people that can do this then. They have to be able to eliminate all other literature and be left only with their Bibles and still know God, still make wise decisions, and still live for Him. In other words, you should be able to disappear to any place on the earth with only a Bible and still be able to walk with God in the power of the Spirit. And if that's all you've got, then you've got what you need. And so we've got to grow to that point where we no longer depend upon intermediaries. Other humans, other human authors. And the way to do that is just keep your heart fully open to God and consume enough of the Word of God to be where you become familiar with it. And, and then you've got to trust that God will unveil Himself from the pages of the Word. And that's what God does in His Word. Hey, does it come to, to you then as any surprise that the Bible is called the Word of God and Jesus is called the Word of God? Has that ever impressed you? Do you know why? Because Jesus Christ unveils himself and gives you the sound of sandaled feet approaching you and accompanying you when you get into the Word of God. He comes alive in a way that uh, he would not otherwise come alive. So the Bible is not an impersonal book. The Bible unveils the very God. When you get into the Word of God, it's as if you have walked into the Holy of Holies and God is there. That's what it's like to get into the Bible. And that's why the Bible is sufficient. And we've got to grow to the point where human authors are no longer necessary, appreciated, sometimes consulted, but the Word of God is enough. But there's a second thing. Not only do we look at the Bible and read the Bible, and examine the Bible. What we've got to understand is this. When we read the Bible, we do not merely read the Bible, but the Bible reads us. Because God unveils Himself and is especially present in His Word, there's a searchlight put on us. Now, oftentimes, 
as the Bible reads us, because God is there, oftentimes that's affirming. And God will comfort you that you're going the right direction, that you're thinking the right thing, and that you have come to the proper conclusion. Sometimes it will expose where we have erred and where we need correction, and it will always point out a new direction. Now, that's the difference between God's work and His Word and the devil's work. All the devil will do is condemn you. But God will bring about conviction, give you some discomfort in your spirit, and then point to a new direction and some hope. That's the difference. But not only do we read the Bible, but the Bible reads us and how necessary that is to happen in our lives to be successful with God. So here's the point. The point is, Find a daily plan to get into the Word, a weekly plan to be in worship, weekly plan to be in a small group, and stick with it. That's it. Now, some people, they'll read three or four chapters of the Bible a day, and they will read through the Bible in a year. I think that's a marvelous thing to do. I know some that read 10 chapters a day and read through it several times a year. Uh, That doesn't take as long as you might think it would. But some read three or four chapters a day and get through it in a year. Some will read a small book of the Bible every day for a month, like Colossians. So by the end of the month, they've read it 30 times, and they're now an expert in the book of Colossians. And they've met God there plenty of times. And then some will take a longer book, like Matthew, with um, 28 chapters, and read a chapter a day for a month, and then start over again the next month. And by the end of the year, they've read Matthew through 12 times, and they know God from there. So success with God depends on the right book. But there's a second thing. Not only the right book, but also we need the right people. We need the right people. And that's what takes place here in the text. Now, uh, in chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, we find references to the Ammonites and the Moabites. And they were exceedingly wicked towards Israel. When under Moses, Israel was leaving Egypt, getting into the promised land. They would not provide them with food or water. And so they were willing to let Israel, the promise and hope of the world in that day, starve and perish from dehydration in the wilderness. Now, they were, Israel was really not asking for much. They were really asking for a way just to pass through these lands. But the Moabites and the Ammonites opposed them, and they never made it right with Israel. And they remained hostile enemies towards Israel throughout the centuries, throughout the centuries. Now, there's one exception to that. There was one Moabite who got things right with Israel. You remember who she was? Ruth. Ruth made it right. And I suspect if all of Moab and all the Ammonites had gotten right like Ruth had, we wouldn't have the problem that we've got in chapter 13. But because they abused Israel so badly, and because they conspired to have a prophet curse them, like Balaam in Numbers 21 through 23, God cut them off and said they are not to even get near the temple. I don't want them anywhere near my presence until they get things right like Ruth. So look at chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And then comes the tough decision they've got to make. And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing, and he still does. So it was, when they heard the law, they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. And so they had to make a tough, tough decision and put God's will above these relationships, and they ended up separating themselves from the Moabites and Ammonites. Now later in the chapter, we find that they had returned to their old ways about marriage. 
they began to marry their children off to those that were outside the faith. And uh, Nehemiah gets pretty vigorous in how he handles that in chapter 13. He takes everything into his own hands and fixes uh, that particular challenge there. But the point is this. They made sure that they were going to be a success with God by uh, circulating with the right people. Proverbs 13.20 says, He who walks with the wise shall be wise, but the companion of fools shall suffer destruction. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Bad company corrupts good morals. And how true that, um, how true that is. Here, here's what I want you to remember. And this has appeared in many different places. It's not original with me. But if you will show me your friends, I will show you your future. I, I, wish, I wish that we were such that we could read the Bible and that would be the most powerful, potent force in helping us make our decisions. And it should be. But until then, the thing and the factor that helps us make our decision more than anything else happens to be our friends. So often they are definitive and they're determinative. Now that should not be. God's word shall be, should be. But the truth is, is that for young Christians, new Christians, for those that might be struggling, who may not have matured as, as they should, their friends happen to be the most definitive, uh, defining, decisive factor in their lives when it comes to their decisions. In fact, many of us end up thinking through um, what our parents would think of a decision and what our siblings would think of a decision and what our friends would think of a decision. So that leads me to say and reaffirm, show me your friends and I will show you your future. And that's the principle and that's the point that is found here. And so what we do in order to be a success with God is that we intentionally pursue friendships with people who have successfully walked with God. We go out of our way. We don't radically segregate ourselves from other age groups, especially young adults and older adults. Now turn with me real quickly, if you will, to Titus chapter 2. And I want to show you this principle at work in the church that Titus is pastoring at the behest of the Apostle Paul. Titus chapter 2. Turn there with me in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, and I'll begin at verse 1, but I want you to pay careful attention to the multi-generational relationships in verses 1 through 4, and look at the function that takes place here. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Look here. But as for you, Titus, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, Sound in faith, in love, in patience. So a younger Titus is to instruct the older men, verse number 2. Now look at verse 3. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Now watch this. There's an older generation of women in verse 3, and look what they do with the younger generation of women in verse 4. That they admonish the young women to love their husbands and love their children, and a variety of other things in the following verses. So what you find here is a multi-generational mix between older women and younger women, where older women give instruction to younger women about how to be good wives, mothers, women, Christians, and all. Now that's been important to us in my family's life through the course of um, our marriage and ministry since 1991. 
My first pastor was about seven hours from Sherry Michelle's uh, mother and grandmother and her family. Our second pastor was about seven hours as well uh, from family. So they were not immediately close when Jonathan and Hannah Grace were real small. And then eventually there were four hours and four hours, and then there were 14 hours when Luke was a baby. And so they were at a good distance. Well, we, we had a need. We needed guidance. We needed direction from those that were older. And so she did a marvelous job connecting with older women in our congregation, whether it was Barbara Mixon or Cookie Avant or any of the others that we walked with in those days. And they gave us instruction about what to do with Jonathan and Hannah Grace and Sarah Kate and Luke and uh, how to raise them and how to nurture them and how to guide them. And they, they, I mean, they jumped into the middle of our lives and helped take care of us. Those multi-generational relationships with the right people. Now, that is what churches provide to all different age groups. That's what churches provide to all age groups. What a wonderful thing it is then to be part of a local church. And so we don't radically segregate ourselves intentionally or accidentally from other generations. We actually mix together and mix together purposefully. So the right relationships and the right book is what we have uh, here. And then the third thing is this. Not only the right book, right relationships, but also the right experience, the right cleansing. The right cleansing. What in the world do you do with your temptations? What in the world do you do with your failures? What in the world do you do with your struggles and sorrows? God offers cleansing. Now, all through human history, since Adam and Eve, God has wanted to walk with His people. God has a passion, as the King of all, to walk in the middle of His subjects and to enjoy them forever and for them to enjoy Him, for Him to care for them, for Him to shepherd them along and along throughout the course of their life and eventually across the Jordan into the other side, on the other side of the grave with eternal bliss. God is passionate about walking with His people. But there's a problem. People keep offending Him. People keep breaking the relationship. People keep polluting the relationship. Well, God's not satisfied with that. Even though they've sinned, He's still not satisfied. And so what God has done is that He's come up with a way to eliminate the offense. Now, He's king, so He's judge. And you've got all these legal offenses against Him, against the king. I mean, we're not talking about the court jester. We're talking about the king. The king himself has been offended. His law has been broken. And uh, uh, the father's not sad. The king is not satisfied with that. So he's come up with a way to eliminate those offenses. And the way that he did it with the patriarchs like Abraham was to have an altar where blood would be spilled. With Moses in the wilderness, it developed and became a tabernacle. And when the blood was spilled, God would come dwell there. And then with Solomon, it happened to be the temple. And that's what Ezra would rebuild and Nehemiah would uh, repopulate Jerusalem so the temple could be function, could uh, function. And so God would dwell with them there. Then when Jesus Christ appeared, he was the final sacrifice and the end of that sacrificial system when he went to the altar of Calvary and God himself sacrificed Jesus there as the final offering for sin. And so instead of God merely dwelling at an altar for a moment or in a tabernacle for a moment or in a temple for a moment, God, because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, now is willing to dwell with His 
people through the fire and through the flood, and not merely for a moment, but for all eternity. That's what Jesus has achieved. Now, the preview of that, the prelude to that, was the sacrificial system in the temple, and that's what the Jews in Nehemiah 13 had eliminated. Look at verse 6, verse 4, excuse me. Before this, Eliashib, the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was allied with Tobiah, a pagan. And he had prepared for him a large room where previously they'd stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine, the oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and gatekeepers, and the offerings for the priest. So while Nehemiah was back with Darius after 12 years and absent, they end up taking the temple and making a room for Tobiah to live in the temple, which brings the sacrificial system to a halt. I mean, it would be like us taking the worship center here and letting a Buddhist monk live inside of it. Well, that would be the end of our worship service. And that's what takes place here in the text. Well, Nehemiah comes along and ejects Tobiah and says, let's crank up the sacrificial system again because God wants to walk with this people. And for that to happen, the offenses have got to be eliminated by blood sacrifice. And that's how important this was. To walk with God, there's got to be blood sacrifice. And so he reinstitutes the sacrifices so the people can be cleansed and they can walk once again with Almighty God. Those that are successful with God constantly, zealously go to God for cleansing. And this is what I want to encourage you to do. Be zealous about taking your temptations and failures to God. Yes, uh, yes. Be zealous. Do not be hesitant. But run, fly, flee, rush into the presence of God with every temptation and with every failure. Why? Because God is there with all knowledge of everything you've done. He's not consumed you. He's not eliminated you. Instead, he's beckoned you to come to him with every temptation and with every failure because there is provision made to cleanse it and remove every offense in the blood of Jesus Christ. That is what God has done for you. So that's why we say, do not merely tiptoe. Don't go in with your head down, but rush, fly, and flee zealously into the presence of God and bring every temptation and every failure to Him. That's what God wants. And you can have that confidence before Him because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There is nothing but doubt and fear to keep you from Him. That's on your part. That's not on His part. Now, why should I do that? Because of the benefits. The benefits are this. Your conscience gets cleared. And in order to be successful with God, you can't have your conscience bothered. You, you can't have it guilty. You, you, you can't have it full of doubt. You've got to be able to think clearly. Your conscience has got to be clear. That's one benefit. Another benefit is the filling and the power of the Holy Spirit. You get your heart and soul clean before God, then you can have the filling and the power of the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus did for the life and work that He performed. And so you can have that, the benefits. But then, the other reason you need to come zealously before God for cleansing is this. It is perfectly okay to come before God as a mess. 
Because there's no other choice. God has no other choice in this world besides sinners. People that are full of sorrow, people that are full of temptation, people that are full of failure. I mean, this is it. And that's precisely what he wants. He doesn't want the failure, but he wants them to come to him. You see, and so you've got to convince yourself on the basis of the promises and authority of the Word of God, it is okay to come to God as a mess. You don't have to get it cleaned up before you come to Him. Before you go to an emergency room, you don't have to get well. Before you see a doctor, you don't have to restore fully your health. You come just as you are, and that's what God wants. That's how he's divine. That's how he's arranged the sacrificial system that flows from the wounds of Emmanuel when he hung at the cross. Thank God for the opportunity to come before him. You can come as a mess. Wonderful. Romans 2.5 says, it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. God's kindness. Now, sometimes A rafter-rattling sermon on judgment and fury and wrath and hell can do that as well. So that's, and then Jesus oftentimes did that. But Paul says there's something else that brings us to repentance before God. And it's not only that kind of message, but it's also the kindness of God. I mean, who couldn't change their mind and, and come to God after looking at the bloody mess the Father made Jesus on the cross? Who couldn't come after looking at that? And then all the precious and great promises to the redeemed and the future and the hope he gives every one of the people of God. Those are kindnesses of God as well. The promise to accompany his people through the fire, flood, and the storm. What a marvelous kindness God is willing to give us. Who could ever stay away from God knowing he has such kindness? Kindness. It's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. What would it mean to repent today? It means you change your mind and determine to head a different direction. That's what it means. So so in, in the context of this message in Nehemiah 13, to repent means this. It means you stop believing that your mess defines your now and future. You stop believing you could never be a success with God. You stop believing that that is definitive, final, and you can never be a success for God. You stop believing that. That's what it means to repent. And then it means you start believing that God has got the love, the ability, the power, the zeal, the eagerness to turn you around and make you new before Him and to make your life a marvelous success with Him. So much so, others will notice and be prompted and inspired to give praise to the name of Jesus Christ. Stop believing temptation and failure then is final and start believing God's promise is definitive. That's what it means to repent. And God's inviting you to do that today. Quickly stand with me, please. And let's pray about it. Father, thank you for the good news of the word. Thank you for what we find in your your promises. Lord, I want to pray for friends today that they would find your kindness and repent.